I am going to share my screen with you just so you can actually see how okay. wretched the audio hijack session looks like. <laughs> I've never used audio hijack. Yeah. Oh, jeez, Louise. So basically, it's it's very, wow, okay. very good. Uh, Rogue Amoeba makes very, very good oh, stuff. Wow. But basically what it does is you have mm-hmm. your sources, the sources for audio, you have yep. outputs, yep. and then you have built-in effects. Oh. You can do like whatever you need. Yeah, wow, exactly. Geez. And then you have... How much uh, did this I software cost? I think it's 50 USD. Yeah, I can't... Okay. Yeah, okay. I okay. So can't remember exactly, but it will be thereabouts. It's in the 50 to 100 range, somewhere there. Yeah. And then okay. uh, D-click, wow, D-noise, damn. D-hum, blah, blah, blah. And then you have meters. Mm-hmm. And then there are actually auto unit effects. So they, they pull mm-hmm. in these effects from Isotope. I don't know about these, but the RX-6 ones, that's Isotope effects. Uh, and Isotope is extremely good and extremely right. expensive. <laughs> but, yeah, so... <laughs> I can uh, imagine. Probably 100 plus bucks. 300. 200 plus? Yeah. Oh, jeez. But okay. um, yeah. basically, okay. like, if I need my system audio, I tried using the Zoom audio, but Zoom only outputs... Zoom is mm-hmm. only outputting uh, you, not me. And I need both to be together because for syncing... Oh, yes. Uh, actually, okay. system mm-hmm. audio has the same problem. So basically, I need these two tracks, your track and my track, to get into one recorder. Um... And then, as a yep. backup, I need yep. my track backed up in case something goes wrong with Logic. That's kind of the purpose. Yes. And then, at the same time, um, whatever sources are captured here, right, they don't automatically go to an output device unless you tell them to. So, mm. right. this is right. kind of what yep. I have. So, the system audio still goes to output, but it goes directly to output without first passing through the recorder. So I had to split it. I see. Okay. Okay. I can actually see the lag between when I speak Correct. and when the output uh, shows yeah. up on the screen. And there is also a okay. disorienting. There is also a, an audio lag if I put the output after the recorder. So I have to actually split the system audio yes. and then it goes yes. to two places rather than to have it yep. go from one place and then yep. to the next place. Yeah. This really makes you wonder how even a small outfit like, say, Bon Appetit does all their home-based um, uh, recordings. Yeah, so I'm actually really curious about that because well. you can... <sighs> so my sister and I watched a BA video yesterday. We watched um, pro chefs make mm-hmm. like pantry pasta at home or something like that. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, yes exactly. I watched that last night. And well, you yeah. can clearly see that... Um, I mean, this is a case of, you know, you take the video people out of the equation and mm-hmm. what you have left, right? Yep. And you can clearly see that yep. some people yep. are a little bit more facile with um, video recording than others, <laughs> like <clears throat> Brad. Yep. Who, yes. you know, can't even tell the difference between like portrait <laughs> and landscape. The yeah. That's right. <laughs> um, and I think it's, it's quite interesting because so... They have a whole video team. Like, it's big. I mean, I mean you see the, they you do, see yeah, the absolutely. Zoom video I I and mean, all it, the producers who are there. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. And you can kind of see yeah. their setup in, in places. But I think it makes you aware of like what their regular setup is. 
or it makes it clear what their regular setup is. So right. invariably, right. they have one person who is uh, in a wide shot, and you see the head to mm-hmm. you know the kitchen counter. And then they always have at least yeah. one, if not yeah, two people, yeah. in a in a close up shot. And they have a boom operator. Yes. So that's yep. the minimum. Yep. You you need two video, yes. one audio, minimum. Um, that's right. That's and right. you see yep. this yep. in cases like where with all the with all the people who um, they had to make a choice about where to angle the camera. So you either angle it at the food or you angle it at your face and of course it's a cooking mm-hmm. channel and you have to that's right. yep. face the food right like the camera has to look at the food sorry I keep I keep hearing this sound coming from your end and it cuts that your audio off that is very off. weird is uh, that you or me? that is a good question is that me? I think it's coming from you I don't that know that is a good question we could turn this entire episode into just talking about, you know, making, make, making I mean, recordings, like, we, we video could, and audio from a could, remote location. Although we should follow up on the dangling <laughs> topic it as well in- on crows. It's, but, you know, it is an interesting topic, right? Because not only is there this, this I mean, BA is one example of, you know, how they've quite well, quite successfully transitioned into a, a sort of a yep. off-site kind of a production system. But they, they, they have the benefit of not requiring some kind of yes, you know, rapid turnaround. Correct. Right now, have I got news for you? And the Mash Report have both uh-huh. returned to the BBC okay. this week. Well, last week actually. Yep. This is their second episode this week, and they're all recording from home and okay. they're all covering current affairs. Which means that the turnaround time for them is yep. basically two days. They record on say a Tuesday. They have to be yep. published by a Thursday or a Friday. So you know, uh, it's. Can you imagine the kind of uh, technical issues that you know, they crop up? How how difficult it would yep. have to be to troubleshoot on the spot because uh, they they are under a very strict time time crunch. Right. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the main problem is with video files, especially your. Okay, so this mm-hmm. is an interesting. This is an interesting case. I think it is very easy to underestimate the gap between amateur and professional when it comes to video and audio because all of us mm-hmm. have such easy access to to recording. Yeah, and actually I just realized yep. I should stop sharing my screen. Um, <laughs> I'm just watching the, right, the, yeah. the, the meter go up so and down. <laughs> I think, um, so this is an example, okay? Um, not to like k- keep dragging my sister's misadventures into this, but she okay so i mean i studied film she studied music she's much better at um audio than i am um and so she kind of said like hey i want to record my practice sessions okay and i want to have them like uh in a format that can be put on the internet so mm. i took my video camera and I set up the video for her and then, you know, she recorded it. And so now we have the problem of how do we get it off the camera into software, right? And yep. the Absolutely. camera that I was using is a Canon XF100. It's an old camera. I mean, it's old okay. in the sense yep. that it's yep. about nine years old at this point. Um, 
yep. and it yep. records into MXF. So the Canon MXF oh, f- like okay. format is like it's a wrapper around. Yep. Um, I don't know what compression it is, but it is a format that is readily supported by or um, Premiere, Final Cut, um, Ten, um, Avid. Media composer as well, and mm-hmm. uh, I can't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like right. those are the big three. Like that's what you know. If you are a video professional, you you use one of those three. So, um, but yeah, yeah. Because I no longer deal with video on a regular enough basis, I stopped my Premiere subscription. Right, and I don't have Premiere. Uh, I don't okay. have Final Cut yeah. because when Final Cut Seven switched to Ten, I kind of jumped on the. Premier bandwagon instead. So, mm-hmm. I mean, if if you're not familiar with like that whole debate, basically Final Cut Pro Seven had a very particular paradigm. It's the kind of a non-linear editing, yes. the standard non-linear editing paradigm that you know. If you, it it's kind of like if you use Premiere, yep. you also know how to use Final Cut Seven, and vice versa. Yeah, but That's when right. they yes. decided to, when they made the jump from pre, pre, um. FCP 7 to FCP 10, they decided, okay, we want to make mm-hmm. this still professional, but more accessible to a, to a non-professional user. Like, it has professional capabilities, they, but the... Right. They, they made the interface a yes, lot exactly. more like iMovie, is it? They made it much more iMovie-like. Okay. And at the time of release, um, mm. it was very controversial because it was much cheaper much, much cheaper. Uh, right. Like, so for perspective, right, Final Cut Pro 7 cost close to four figures, if I remember. Yeah. Oh, shit. Uh, it was expensive. Oh, wow. Okay. And Final Cut Pro 10 now is like 299 USD. Yeah. <laughs> 299 Yeah, I think so. Right, that makes Correct. sense. Okay, wow. But at huh. the time of um, release, it was not quite like it was missing essential professional features and so there were all these professionals who were angsting about okay do I do I want to commit to continuing Final Cut Pro 10 and hoping that mm-hmm. all these essential features will get backfilled at some point but then why would they because Apple seems mm-hmm. more concerned right. about the consumer market Right, or yeah. do I make yeah. the jump yeah. to Adobe Premiere, and uh, you know where I know they are committed to professionals because that's what Adobe does in its entire suite of creative products. You're right, and there will, yeah, that's yeah, a correct. Market, and there will basically. be a learning curve, and it won't be as nice to use as Final Cut is because Adobe is third party software, right? Final Cut is first party software. <laughs> it- yeah. That's right. And yeah. uh, I mean, now I think they've kind of settled a little bit. Like there are professionals who have returned to Final Cut Pro 10. Um, now that yeah, now that it's more oh, stable, it? okay. and then there are those who went to Premiere right. and never looked back. Um, but I mean, it was a shot in mm. the arm for Premiere, mm. which was a distant third place after Avid Media Composer, and hmm. yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yes. And, uh, the correct. AMC people yeah. were less affected by this because AMC is available on both uh, mm-hmm. both Mac and Windows, and also AMC is also mm-hmm. 
non-linear editing, it's it it's like you can kind of edit the way that you would in 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 FCP seven, but um, it has right. a very specific way of thinking about editing, similar in a way to you know Final Cut mm. Pro ten, the way that in film school, like the way that professors talked about it was in Final Cut Pro 7, you have many ways to edit. Mm -hmm. However you like to edit, you can make it work for you in FCP 7. AMC is very powerful. Right, yeah. But you have one way to edit. You either, it's, they (laughs) tell you this is how you are going to edit and you do it that way or else you just, you'll struggle. Yeah, exactly. Don't use it. So I think like people who like the flexibility of SCP-7 yeah. were like, ah. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, that whole like aside, aside, um, mm. yeah. I, don't, I no longer have a Premiere Pro subscription. My sister doesn't have any of these. Um, okay. So- doesn't have any of this software. And let's see. FCP-7 is, you know, 300 bucks. Uh, FCP 10, sorry, is 300 bucks. So I'm not going to plonk down like 300 bucks on, (laughs) you know, on on software when, you know, the video doesn't even really need editing. It literally just needs to, you know, we just need to be able to take the video off the camera and put it onto Mm. the internet somewhere, right? But then the problem is iMovie does not accept MXF. It does not accept the MXF format what? because it is an uncommon format. Jeez. Okay, and it is only okay. I think only okay. Canon uses it, and only on a small range of its professional cameras. So, I mean, naturally, huh. the assumption is if you are using this format, you are a professional, and you have the necessary correct exactly. Access to professional software. And then yeah. I was like, okay, how yeah. do we deal with this? Um, I googled, like, you know, convert MXF to MP4. Then a bunch of shady mm-hmm. websites came up. And then uh, eventually I yeah. found um, that Wondershare, which makes, like, prosumerish software. I mean, I'm, I'm personally not familiar with it, but uh, I know that some of my colleagues have used Wondershare software for video. So, um, okay. yeah. I, I, me neither. Until okay. I saw it on the work computer, I was like, hmm, what's this? Mm. So they have a, mm. a software called Uniconverter, and it's seventy dollars. Oh, and seventy oh. USD. Jeez, yeah, and please. literally, um, it converts all right. sorts of audio and video to all sorts of other audio and video formats, and it will take MXF and spit it out for you okay. as a MP4, MOV, or whatever. So it was a whole right. roundabout thing, and in the end, we still had to pay seventy USD for that. But then. 70 USD Jeez. is like three months of Premiere Pro, so. That's true. Well, it reminds me actually of a, of a, of a similar problem that we have mm-hmm. in uh, bioinformatics, which, you know, as you can imagine, you know, suffers also from the same problem of, of, of video production, which is a multitude mm-hmm. of formats, uh, some of which, you know, can and cannot be converted into each other. So that's, uh, that's a real pain in the ass. Basically, I think... There is a saying in, in, in bioinformatics that um, I think 90% of your time is spent just converting files from okay. one format to another. What's the... Uh-huh. Yeah, because, you know, 
Well, it depends on what you're looking at, right? So it depends on, you know, what your data has returned to you, the form in which your data has returned to you. So for example, if you're doing, say, uh, okay. gene sequencing, right? If I uh, sequence, say, five genes on a old-fashioned mm-hmm. Sanger sequencing device. So Sanger sequencing is one of those things where it sequences a relatively small number of base pairs. So it's useful for sequencing, say, short fragments of genes or short regions that you, okay. you, you want to look at. Um, usually the data comes back in the form of a what we call a FASTA okay. file, F-A-S-T-A. Uh, so it contains the raw base pairs and it contains a, um, a a header for each sequence that you you know you can tag the sequence with a header to let you know where the sequence came from, which sample, what's the sample name, etc. Okay. etc. Right? And then they later came up with a different format called FASTQ. FASTQ is uh, designed for... Um, uh, next generation sequencing platforms, which not only do the sequencing in high volumes, but they also provide a quality score okay. for each base call. So every time I sequence a base, it adds a alphabet or it adds a code to say, is this a high or low okay. quality base using some kind of complex likelihood formula? So, just so that's fast Q. So faster and fast Q already. Curiosity, two what formats. is a high yeah. or low quality base? Ah, okay. So this is interesting, right? So when I sequence uh, DNA, Right, there are many, many ways of, of sequencing DNA, but primarily a lot of this is based off okay. fluorescence. So in um, in Sanger sequencing, what happens is I put the DNA into the machine. Uh, the machine will start to uh, add bases. Uh, it's it's going to well, okay. it's it's complicated. Basically, what it does is that it uses fluorescence tag bases. So DNA has four yep. bases: so A, T, C, and G. Yep. Correct. So what I'll do is I'll introduce a bunch of fluorescent tag bases. So each base has a different uh, fluoresces oh, a different okay. wavelength, and the moment it binds to the DNA, it fluoresces right. a certain color, right? And then I can take a snapshot, and so I can create what uh, what we call a a, okay. a a chromogram, right? Showing uh, the changes in color spectra as the sequencing goes on and on and on and on. Now, as you would expect, the longer your DNA sequence is the okay. more noise you're going to get. Where does this noise come from, though? Yeah, so which is why? From interference from other uh, bases. Okay, I see, I see. Okay. Right, right. So so basically, when I look at the chromogram, I can say, okay, so at position one, you know, this, this wavelength is dominant, so therefore it's an A. Position two, this wavelength is dominant, so it's a, it's a okay. T, and so on and so forth. Right, then you have certain cases where, you know, you're you know, due to sequencing error or due to just detection error, you get ambiguous bases, so you put an ambiguity right. code or something like that. Now, that's also how, um, in a sense, the uh, next-generation sequencing platforms do it, but they do this on a mass scale. They do this on a chip scale. So what they do is they'll create a... They'll have a chip where they have these free-floating probes. It's very, okay. it's very hard to explain without visuals, but basically what happens is that you you prepare your DNA libraries and you wash them over the, 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 the chip and they bind to the chip, and then they will start to sequence in the fl- they'll start to sequence it uh, on multiple locations on the chip at any one point in time. So basically, it can create an average value for any particular okay. position. It, it is very hard to visualize, but yes. Right? You see what I mean? Right? Okay. Yeah. So, so okay. L- long story short, right? Basically, you know, uh, every time I say, okay, at this position, it's a certain base, it is, ba- it, this this call is made on a probabilistic right, okay. basis, right? Because I cannot know, you know, because, because of limitations of technology, I cannot know for sure, unless all the calls come up, come back with the same, with the same uh, value, whether or not my, 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 my uh, base right, call okay. was correct or not. So FastQ was designed 
for these kinds of situations, which you know it incorporates a likelihood, maximum likelihood based uh, okay, probability right. call, to inform you how confident you are uh, that that base your call to that position okay. is an accurate call. Right. So that's DNA sequencing, and so that's just two two formats. Back to the issue of formats, that's just two formats: the yeah. FASTA and FASTQ format for right. raw DNA sequence. And then once I you know process my DNA. Right. Once I say I align my DNA sequences and I and, and, and you know I I the, the number of formats suddenly explodes. You have things like phylip formats, which are and, and, and nexus formats, which are alignment for alignments that allow you to you know to create uh, phylogenetic trees. Um, and then if I just want to look at uh, uh, single nucleotide polymorphism SNPs, these are mutations, point mutations. I can I can reduce it down into a okay. table style matrix. And for those, you have a, another variety, you know, million varieties of formats, structure formats, gene pop formats, VCF formats. Um, and it's because, right, it, 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 you know, in science, you have lots of different independent lab groups right, creating yep. their own software. And a lot of these people who write their own software, they come right. up with their own formats. And so, you know, th- this results in this huge explosion of different format types, some of which are extremely similar to one another, some of which, you know, are extremely different from each other. Uh, and converting it can be a pain. There, there, there is one software that a lot of people use. It's developed by a French lab called PGD Spider that, that converts uh, a million, million different formats into each other, which is very good. But once in a while, you encounter one of these, you know, weird new softwares or, you know, not very widely used software packages where the conversion is not okay. available. And so either you do it by hand or okay. you die. <laughs> well, well, there are three options. One is you know, manually force-fit the data right. into their new format. Number two is wait for someone to write a okay. script or beg someone to write a script for you to convert one format to another. Or you write your own script, which is what I've done for okay. in a couple of cases. Yeah, so I've I've actually used R to write uh, conversion scripts before. It's it's a pain in the ass, but you know when you're dealing with say a thousand input files, you know if you do it by hand, it's not worth yeah. your time. I mean, it's it's really underappreciated. Like when you talk about like data and file formats and and everything, um, I mean, so we just my company just got a new uh, data analyst intern, and. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, in uh, I, I personally at the moment have had like relatively little uh, contact, but we had a onboarding session over Zoom, of course, um, where we talked about like, okay, mm-hmm. these are these are the this is the data that we have, and this is the data that we would, or these are the questions that we would like to answer, and it's kind of like, um, you know, so we use a software called Happy Fox. For I mean, we use a lot of software, right? Because mm-hmm. we are a primarily a technology-ish. It's a it's it's hard to explain, but we um, are effectively a technology company that deals with mm-hmm. primary healthcare. Anyway, um, so our support system runs on Happy Fox. If you don't know what Happy Fox is, just think Zendesk. Okay. Yeah, Zendesk is like the it's like the default oh, okay. help desk software, right? But for various yeah. reasons, uh, before I joined the company, yeah, yeah. Um, it was decided that we would use a Happy Fox, and um, Happy Fox does mm-hmm. a lot of things well, but it is very, very poor at generating reports. At least the way that we use it 
and the way that it suits our our workflow. Um, the reports that it generates right. are very basic. So there are a few things that we want to know, right? Like we want to know, okay, um, where are okay? How many tickets? How many support tickets are raised? Um, also, mm-hmm. where are these reports coming from? Like which companies, which partners are raising these tickets? And then there is an added complication. Yeah. There is an added yeah. complication that um, they can the reports can come from company administrators or they can come from company employees. Hello. Can you hear me? Hello, hello. Okay, yes. Is okay, it rolling? That works. All right. Okay, like great. Sorry. Yeah, let's Back just do a clap. Where we were. So, let's just do a clap yeah. to be... Yep. One, two, three. Okay, here we go. Okay, so... Yeah. The problem... Wait, I can hear you now from my end, so will that affect the recording? Um, It shouldn't. Unless, like, for okay. example, if I'm speaking right now and you are seeing the, your meter move... Like, okay, a little so bit, but it's, I, not, it's not hitting the yellow. Okay. Uh, how, how a little bit is a little bit? Is it like just You're at in the, the green? Is it like at the bottom, uh, at the middle? At the bottom. Uh, bottom the, to middle, so it's, it's not that significant. Yeah, bottom is fine. Bottom is okay. fine. In fact, um, yeah. RX6 might be able to strip that out. So is that right? Okay. That's okay. why it's $300. There we go. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay, so coming back to um, Happy Fox. So we basically want to find out, right, like who is raising these tickets, right? Who's encountering mm-hmm. problems or who has questions? Is it coming from company administrators? Because we are a B2B business, right? Is it yep. company yep. administrators? Is it company employees using the software? Or is it from partners who are on board, right? Or mm. uh, occasionally it's also useful if, for example, if it's a sales inquiry, so actually not a support inquiry, uh, it, it, it's useful if it is like a pure like finance inquiry as well. Um and things like that. So, okay, we you you can set up like custom categories in in Happy Fox to indicate, like okay, we want to know, like this is a ticket that falls into such and such category, okay, or this mm-hmm. is a ticket that comes in from such and such partner, um, and, I mean you can set up all of those categories, but here's the thing, Happy Fox will not let you generate a default report based on custom categories. I mean, you can, you can, but it's not as, uh, it doesn't have as much facility with those. Okay. Right? okay. Um, do, do they not have an API where you can just... They do have an, the... they do have an API, but who's going to sit down and, and mm. like pull stuff out of the API? Right. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> Although I've gotten desperate <laughs> enough that I actually like looked it up. It's like, I mean, it's doable, but because I yeah, I mean, it should be possible, right? Especially since you know, I've I've seen uh, so many of these now. Online platforms have have APIs that output to PDF. I mean, custom reports. I mean, I would like to be able to, you know, just like build my own kind of like reporting software for Happy yeah. Fox. But then it's like, who has time to do that? Like, if that's not a core part of your job, right? And there is no, yeah. like, spare engineering capacity to be like, help me solve that's this problem. Right. Um, and then there is one very aggravating thing that I found out the other day. So, Happy Fox is, they are in the process of upgrading their their reporting, you know, features. So, they have right. a, okay. they have an update, they have a new report 
type of uh, section and then they have a classic report. So the classic report is more comprehensive because it contains a lot of data that hasn't been put into the, you know, that hasn't been rewritten for the new part yet. The new stuff mm-hmm. is just better at visualizing data like, you know, your your line graphs, your bar graphs, your pie charts and everything. The older right. stuff yep. is, um, it's much more, I mean, you, you can kind of see some basic visualization but it's not as good in a lot of ways mm-hmm. and um, there is one key um, factor right in any kind of customer service software which is service level agreements you mm. want to know yeah. right like if we say that we will reply within like X working days or X hours that those targets are being met right yeah. so yeah um, something aggravating that I found out was that Happy Fox allows you to download what's called the tabular view. And the tabular view is pretty much, uh, it's a a table. It's an Excel sheet, actually. But you can imagine oh, that... God. Yeah. You can imagine that this is actually the Excel representation of whatever database table that they have in the back end, right? Yes. And it Wait, is... is it in .xlxx format or is it in .csv format at the very you, least? You can do in either. You can download okay. it in either. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So that tabular view gives you all the data that you you would expect, right? It gives you the mm-hmm. um, it gives you the ticket ID, the ticket title, where it was sent from, you know, who created it, um, the you know first response time, average response time, and yada yep. yada yada. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and also like who closed it, like. You know what category and all basically that every stuff. column they can think of is in the, yes. in the Excel spreadsheet. Yes, and um, you can also see kind of in you know in, in when you are designing a database that there is some information that you don't want to duplicate or you don't want it all in one table because yeah. that actually makes it less efficient. Because if you want to reference a very specific piece of information, you have to read the whole table, right, or search through the yes. whole table. So the SLAs, my guess is that the SLAs are in a separate table, which would make perfect sense. Okay. Mm-hmm. But um, when I want to read the detailed breakdown of the SLAs, okay, there is a separate download for that. Okay. Oh, okay. And okay. so there is a so there is a little table that says like, oh, SLAs, you know, like initial response time, normal priority, initial response time, high priority, initial response time, you know, low priority, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then it's like SLA target, SLA like checks, how many times the tickets were checked, and how how many of those checks breached the breached the SLA, right? And then it, gives, it will give you a percentage of how often we hit those targets. Right. So. Um, that is the top level data, right? But if I want to know which tickets breached SLA and why, I have the option to download again uh, in Excel or CSV, okay? Um, the, the breakdown, and the breakdown is literally every ticket ID. Uh, and I can't oh, remember. Christ. I think it's also every ticket title, but I could be okay. wrong about that. And then... So that's the that's the rows, right? The rows yep, are the tickets. Yep. The columns right. is every single SLA. And then it tells you how many times that particular 
ticket breached for SLA. Okay. Oh my god. Okay. Okay. So here's right. the here's the crazy thing. So I want to find out the trend of our SLAs over time. Are we improving or yeah. are we stable or are we like dropping? Is SLA performance dropping? Yeah. The SLA table does not contain the date. <laughs> this so, sounds like a problem that you could very easily solve in, say, Python or R. Yeah, you could. You could. But right. how many... Just ingest it and, you know, just do table joins or, yeah. Yes, correct. It's a very... it's Programmatically, it's a very easy problem to solve. Right? right. But which customer service manager has the time to sit down and write... <laughs> and well, write... I mean, yeah, fair enough. Customer yeah. service is a whole different ballgame. But, you know, if it, this is something that a, a software engineer or, you know, someone who just knows basic coding in R yeah. could solve in an afternoon, I would yeah. expect. So I think here's the thing. Like, it's not a difficult problem to solve, right? No, it's not. Um, yeah. But it's also one of those things where on the list of priorities of somebody whose main function is customer support, <laughs> it drops to the, to the bottom straight away. Yeah. Like, when yeah, I look at enough. these two things, I'm like, I'll do this sometime. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. Um, I did... Okay, so, I mean, the funny thing is that the API actually provides more information than you can actually download from the reports. Right. Which is another crazy thing to me. Yeah. I'm like, I understand why that is... Um, I understand why that might be possible because the reports are a top-level view, right? And the individual mm-hmm. tickets... Uh, granular so the API will allow you to pull out information such as the actual audit trail of the tickets who did what at what time oh blimey okay yeah yeah yeah. yeah. but then I think I mean which is what an API is for right so yeah. give you as much power to, to do as much as you can yeah exactly so um, I, I'm kind of in this situation where so originally what I did for the last quarter was um, I took the Excel sheet and I pulled it out and I imported it into Airtable. Uh, actually, I say mm-hmm. Excel sheet, but it's not an Excel sheet. It was a CSV. I've never used Airtable before, but I've heard about it before. Yeah. Airtable is like... I'm losing you. I'm... It's like prosumer okay. database software. Right. So it's like, if you think about Excel, right? Yeah. If you are an accountant, obviously Excel is amazing. But if you're yes. using Excel the way that most people do... Uh, which is to keep track of records of some kind as opposed Mm -hmm. to financial or spreadsheet data, right? Or like just like statistical analysis and stuff like that. If you're using it to keep records, right, that's really more of a database domain than spreadsheet domain. And um, if you think about what a database is, most of the time, database software is built for software engineers. You're talking about like MySQL, Postgres, SQLite, yes. Oracle, Oracle, Microsoft Server, yeah. that kind of thing. Um, yeah. It's not really meant for somebody who is just thinking to himself, I want to catalog all the books in my house. <laughs> right? Fair enough. Yeah. And so Airtable is somewhere in between. It looks and behaves like Excel, um, okay. but it has some of the capabilities that you would expect of uh, of database software. So, for example, you can you you know you can set the data type. You can say like this is a single select or a multiple select. So, for example, like if it's a book, right? Your single select 
could be something like genre. Okay. Right. Okay. And then um, if you're if you have a multiple select, that could be something like tags, like funny, mm. you know, um, yep. or like depressing, or you know, <laughs> feel good read or something like that. And then you can yep. put multiple tags into associate multiple tags with one, um, with one record. And then you can also do a kind of, you know, cross reference. Um, yes. It's it's not exactly a table join because okay. I don't think Airtable really has the ability to join a table in that sense. But you can cross reference right. a record. So you might have a, a table that's called books, and then you might have a table that's called authors. Mm, and then, yeah. of course, the books table has a column called has a has a column called authors, and then the authors mm-hmm. table has a column called books, and they cross reference yes. one another. Yeah. Right. And you can see yeah. that this would be a pain to to set up in Excel, and yes. it's trivial for a. Uh, it's a lot of V lookups in the correct. in between sheets, basically. Correct, and it's something that would be trivial for a database software, but then you would need to build the whole content management system around it. Yes. Correct. Yeah, so that's Airtable occupies that kind of middle ground. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I have a personal Airtable subscription and I took this probably, you know, not great, but I took this information out of Happy Fox and I ingested mm-hmm. it into Airtable so <laughs> that I could do a bunch of things with it. Like for example, you know, we have account managers and I wanted to see like okay, which person's account is generating the most support load. Right? Yeah. Or which person's yeah. accounts, I should say. And this is not necessarily like a, you know, like, oh, your companies are causing the most problems, but it's just much more of a reality that we segment the companies based on like particular characteristics. And naturally, yes. some types of companies will have a higher support load. And it's like, okay, we need to keep an eye on yeah. these. And like, we may need to have a few words now and then because of like particular incidents or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it's that kind of thing. And... It's like to generate that information. So at first I was just like, oh, you know, it's fine. I'll just set aside like a little bit of time every Friday to do it. Well, <laughs> did not happen because it was, it took so long. I would every, can you imagine, right? Every time I want this data, I have to go to Happy Fox, export the most recent data, put it in, and then yep. I have to clean it up because it's not, um, it doesn't do, it's not the format that I want it in. And yep. actually, the most like mind blowing, like infuriating part of it was um, tags. So Happy Fox has the option to give you for you to tag items. Okay. You can tag a ticket as being you know, as as falling under a particular cat uh, tag, right? Um, not a category exactly, but then the the literally the only thing that Happy Fox lets you do with tags is to see how many tags. Um, no, see how many tickets fall under that tag. Okay. And then to see all the tickets that fall under that tag, that's it. There is no tag associated reporting. Oh, yikes. Okay. That's... None at all. So if I want to see, for example, the number of tickets that are tagged, like what is invoice for? Because that is a that is a tag that I have. Right. right? People yeah. will email like, I got an invoice, what is it for? And I want to yeah. know like how often that is, because then, you know, it's kind of like, okay, maybe we need to do something about what our invoices look like because people don't yeah, know what yeah. they're being built for. So, um, literally, the only thing that I can do in Happy Fox is find out how many things are tagged that and which tickets are tagged that. I cannot Oof. break it down by time. 
Right. I cannot yeah. like do a cross reference of like a particular companies constantly having this question. I cannot do any of that. Okay. And when I export the tabular view, right, the what uh, Happy Fox yeah. calls essentially the database view, when I export yeah. that out, would you believe the tags are not separated? Like the tag values oh. are not separated. So if I tag one ticket, like three things, right? If I tag one ticket, three different things, and these three things are maybe like um, something like, let's see, um, I'm, I'm trying to be discreet at the same time as I'm yes, trying to course. give examples. If these three well, this things... Really bad, though. Yeah, if these three right. things are tagged like um, known bug requires mm -hmm. backend and mm -hmm. at the same time um, something like uh, add, add employee or something like that. Okay? Yep. Okay. Yep. The tabular view gives me literally six words separated by a space known a bug at employee requires backend no that's oh good god at yes. least put a comma separator right yes so this is a crazy thing and the first time i ingested the table into air table and i saw that i was like oh, holy i cannot yeah, that, that is bad and um, I mean that's something that that's something that that you know that hopefully the software will fix because this is not something that you can you know find a, a, a simple workaround for in the uh, using right, a, a right. mapper or a, a right. script. This is something that you know yeah is output so is raw output exactly. And the thing is, it can't possibly be stored in the database that way. That would that is no no that is something yeah, that no. is being put into the table when you ask to generate the data. Right, because right. they must have a separate table with yep. all the tags and then another cross-referencing table with like this tag, this ticket, right? I and mean, then that's... This wouldn't, even, this wouldn't even fly in Excel. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which exactly. I, I, you know, I treat as the lowest bar of... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, sort of data containers. So I think there was one week when I sat down and I just like comma separated all the tags manually. Oh, and then Airtable, fortunately, is smart enough after that to be like, oh, okay, when I see these two words, it's a, uh, you know, I, I can kind of like bring it in really? as a, yeah, it's actually really good with that. Um, so wow, I think it was shit. the first week and then after that, it was a bit better. Okay. okay. Um, yeah. And it just became very easy to like not do it on a weekly basis. Like I would do it every like right, two weeks, right. every like three weeks, let it slip now and then kind of thing. And the How final... The final time that I... Um, and every week, I would try to add something onto it. So uh, I would kind of like pull out the, um, you know, some new bit of data and then I would like cross-reference it and such. So yeah. it was it was a lot of time. Oh, jeez. And the final week that I did it, I timed it. It was one and a half hours <laughs> to How generate a basic with report. data visualization? Okay. So that is a pro feature. That's a premium feature. Uh, um, if you don't have, if you are not paying, and it's not cheap, isn't it? Like twenty four per person per month, USD. Okay. Okay. Um, it has some data visualization, so just like Excel, I mean, you can do your standard yeah. like bar charts, bar graphs, uh, pie charts, yada yada yada, um, pivot tables. Mm -hmm. Um, it has 
the ability to do some things that are relatively unusual. Like for example, you can actually use an Airtable a table to generate, say, an org chart. So okay. you can actually like kind of, you know, make things into a hierarchy in you can say like, you know, this is subordinate to that, this is subordinate to that, blah blah blah, and then it spits out an org chart. Um, so right. you can do that. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. And um, so the visualization part, it falls under what they call blocks. So visualization is just one of their blocks. And I would say in that respect, um, other than some of the funky stuff like the org chart and so on, it's probably not that different from Excel. Right. Okay. So, yeah. I mean, it, it basically, it's very oriented towards very specific use cases. Correct. Correct. But then the blocks are a bit more, the blocks are a bit more um, versatile, I would say, because, okay, they don't, they don't build the blocks as visualization tools. They build it more as like, um, you know, if, if you're using Airtable as some kind of control center, what other Mm -hmm. things other than data might you want to see? So they have, for example, um, a dedupe block, that okay. will just run through the duplicates and ask you which one do you want to keep. You know, yeah. press press left for keep the left one, press right for keep the right one, and you just oh. churn through them, that kind of thing. Okay. Um, okay. And then there are some um, integrations with other software that I haven't really looked at because I don't use it with other software, but um, you can actually link it up with like some maps software, maybe some mailing list software. I'm not very sure. And then... I don't know what it does, but yeah. Right. Fair enough. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm coming from this, you know, because as someone who deals a lot with data on a regular basis, I've, I've taken quite well to using R. I'm still struggling with learning Python, but you know, basically those two are sort of free, but also very powerful for just ingesting data and, and, and creating nice, clean visualizations as well for your data. So, Right. So, but obviously, you know, not not as well suited, I, I would expect, for uh, you know business type functions. Although you never know, R is <laughs> quite a versatile uh, platform, and lots yeah. of packages, you know, do all kinds of weird stuff. So you never know what you might find on the the, the CRAN uh, database. Yeah, I mean, I thought about it, as in, I thought about like maybe just to kind of like get through this this data, it would be nice to you know, pick up some data analyst, data science skills. Yeah. Um, but then after yeah. a while, I was like, I mean... And by the way, R is super easy to use because if you basically, if you, a lot of uh, data analysis in R, or not data analysis, but data wrangling in R is done mm-hmm. using this package called dplyr. Okay. Uh, and dplyr is written such that it mimics natural language as much as possible. Interesting. So okay. it's it's very, very powerful. Uh, and you can do a remarkably, you know, complex series of tasks using a minimal amount of code. Right. That's interesting. It's really, really useful. I, 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 the problem is, is, again, you can't talk about this, you know, and not have a visual to, to, to accompany it. But it's very, very powerful and it's extremely user-friendly. Basically, if I'm able to use it, anyone can do it. Right. Okay. So, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I for a period of time, I actually seriously looked at, like, you know, do I need to pick up data analysis skills for mm. for this for this job and i think at some point i was just i just kind of decided like you know if you do a cost benefit analysis it's like okay yeah. you know you know what it's not really a it's not 
that much of a core function. It would be something that would allow us to do... Um, we would be able to kind of wrangle data and like wrangle some of the reporting and so on. But I think for me at least, right, to get up to speed to produce the kind of data and the kind of like analytics that we would want, it's like, it's not that, it's like that to me is not as much of a benefit as the effort would cost. Right. And um, also they're not paying you enough. <laughs> to do that, right? So, uh, yeah, no, the, the, no. That's why we have a data analyst intern. So, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. fair enough. Anyway, um, were we going to talk about crows? Oh, good God! Right, coming back to the uh, circling back to last week's. Uh, well, not really last week's discussion, but it's two weeks we, ago. We but whatever, wanted yeah. Wanted to talk about two weeks ago, and then ended up not talking about. Um, we could, right? It's a, it's a, it's an interesting paper. I haven't I haven't actually read the paper in detail. I've only skimmed it. Uh, but from what I know, right? You know, uh, this is an interesting situation. So, uh, what's the title well, of the paper? Oh, good God! Let me go and pull it up. Hang on. <laughs> uh, where is? Because otherwise, I'll never find it afterwards. Yeah. Um. Hang on. It's somewhere in my aha. Okay. Uh, it's called cryptic. Oh, it's it's a it's a technical title, so it's not not going to sound sexy. It's in a journal called Molecular Ecology, which is known for publishing technically very excellent papers, but not always framed in the most exciting fashion. Okay. Um. So it's uh the paper is called cryptic and extensive hybridization between ancient lineages of American crows. Okay. It's uh it's uh, written. Uh, the first author is Dave Slager, so he's a I think a PhD student at the University of Washington in Seattle. Okay. Uh, I've met him a, once or twice at a conference here and there. Um, and he's from John Clicker's lab. So this, this lab has been doing a lot of bird-based research, you know, using DNA. And basically, the, it, it's a very interesting situation because... Um, so in, in, if you, if you uh, visit the Pacific Northwest of, of North America, mm-hmm. right? So British Columbia, Seattle, Washington State, right? Um, the crows in that area, uh, there's supposed to be two species of crows that dominate in the area. One is the northwestern crow and the other is the American crow. Okay. Um, under normal circumstances, telling them apart is is not easy. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, from a bird watcher's perspective, I couldn't tell the difference between the, uh, a northwestern crow or an American crow. At least if you, you know, if you go further east where the uh, you get the uh, fish crow and the American crow, you can kind of tell them apart by the call. But northwestern crow is ident- effectively identical plumage-wise as okay. the American crow. I mean, what are the um, supposed differences? I can't, I, let, let me pull up an app to, 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 to check. Hang on, I have got the, uh, the field guide on my phone. Okay. Let's see what it says. Okay, north... Western, uh, hang on, um, all, okay. Okay. Uh, um, Northwestern crow, here we go, okay. <laughs> Description <laughs> from from David Sibley's guide, Few Guide to the Birds of North America. Habits and appearance essentially identical to American crow. Okay, Average great. Is slightly smaller and shorter tail, but not distinguishable by appearance and doubtfully identifiable by voice. Uh, okay, so so what are the like? How did they become classified as? Why are they classified as two different species? 
That's a good question. I'm not entirely sure, but basically at some point in history, right, you know, uh, it was decided that, oh, there's actually two species of crow, right? The American crow and the Northwestern crow. I think it's probably based off very minute size measurements. You know, this is a, if, you, if you go to a museum and you, you take out the skins, you know, these preserved birds, preserved skins, and you do measurements, there's probably a morphological difference, but it's so subtle that, you know, viewing it from afar... And, you know, unless you actually physically have the bird in your hand and you have a, a ruler or calipers with you, it's not going to be possible to tell them apart. Right, okay. Right. So what Dave Slager did uh, was he, you know, he got DNA samples from a whole bunch of crows from uh, all the way in, I believe, in Alaska, uh, all the way down to almost to Oregon, I think, or even to California. Good God. All right. Okay. Um, and, you know, he com- basically, you know, he sequenced the DNA, he compared it, and it turns out there is this huge cline of hybridization All uh, right. as you go from north to south, right? Okay. Um, and basically, this hybridization cline is so broad that it suggests that it's effectively just one species. So, so what is, you know, I, I, I think what the conclusion of this paper is, is that, you know, because of historical ice age uh, glaciation, Okay. And the Pacific Northwest was extremely strongly affected by glaciation. Right. Uh, islands like, you know, basically a huge chunks of, if I'm not mistaken, huge chunks of British Columbia were covered by ice sheets right. during the last Pleistocene Ice Age. And this would have, you know, basically removed any habitat. So it would have basically sp- split uh, any sort of widespread crow populations into two separate populations. Right. And, you know, during that time, they must have diverse, di- diverged. Right? Okay. But the retreat of the ice sheets, the retreats of the retreat of the glaciers, would have allowed these populations to come back into secondary contact. Okay. So and it would appear that they're not, you know, diverged widely enough for them to be reproductively isolated from each other. So basically, they, you know, yeah, they, 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 they were able to to fuse back into what essentially looks like one species. Okay. So if I understand this correctly. They were effectively originally one species. Well, they would have to be, right? Right. You know. Okay. Yeah, that makes it, that makes sense. From they, a phylogenetic perspective, they would yeah. have had a common ancestor. Yeah. That would have preceded, uh, predated the Ice Age, or yeah. the last Pleistocene okay. Ice Age, and then this common ancestor would have diverged because of you know uh, just just because, just because they of, couldn't well, it split into two populations, as you said, right? Yeah. So these so two populations we call didn't this mix. Allopatry. Right, the allopatry, okay. allopatry, where yep. where you have geographic separation of two populations. Allopatry. Yes, P A T R Y. Okay. So there's allopatry where you have uh, two populations that exist in different geographic areas, but the same ancestor. Sympatry is literally what allopatry is, and then, yeah. and what patry? Sympatry, which is where you sympatry. have two populations that exist in the same geographic That's area. S Y N P A T R Y. Sympatry. Oh, okay, cool. I okay. don't know the linguistic origins of this. I, but I you do, probably but know me. you can go. Yeah, yeah, go on. Yeah, so so yeah, so common ancestor, and then a split in allopatry, and then because of the retreat of the ice sheets, they were able to come back into secondary contact, and then merge again. Right. Okay. So this is a question that it's uh, it's I don't fully understand. Okay, but when we talk about speciation right like how how what actually constitutes a species do you have 20 hours 
Oh, well, actually I mean, 13 weeks of two-hour lectures. Oh, is that enough? It's, well, maybe not. Um, <laughs> okay. Now, the, 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 the idea of a species has been... Um, oh, jeez. It's, uh, it's a complicated topic, <laughs> to say right. the least. Right. Uh, uh, there the, the, the is no one universal consensus of a definition as to what constitutes a species. Because species, you know... Uh, I mean, put it this way. Um, some scientists can't even agree if species are a biological reality or not. Right. Right. Okay. Especially, you know, in the modern era of, you know, genomic research, where we start to see that, hey, you know, hybridization is actually much more common than we previously thought. Okay. And gene flow... By hybridization, what do you mean? So hybridization... ah, Well, hybridization presupposes the definition of species. So hybridization is when two different species interbreed to form a hybrid offspring. Right, okay. So, um, uh, humans and Neanderthals probably hybridized a long time ago. Right. Right, somewhere in Europe. So I think if you... Any non-Sub-Saharan African will have at least 3% Neanderthal DNA in their genome. Interesting, okay. Because of an ancient hybridization event that happened probably somewhere in Europe... Right? Okay. And that, that, that sort of hybridization event um, resulted in the, the, the transfer or the movement of some part of the Neanderthal genome into the human genome. Okay. Right? And, and all of us, descend, the non-Sub-Saharan descendants of, of this hybridization event, would carry a bit of Neanderthal ancestry in, in our blood. Okay. Right. Um, okay. I mean, what else? Uh, uh, looking at birds, ducks are famous for hybridizing. So if you, if you, uh, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of ducks in Singapore. Um, so hybridization is not that easy to, 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 to suss out. Uh, but if you live in the temperate zones and you encounter things like gulls and ducks, hybridization is rampant in these two groups of birds. Um, very often you see ducks con- uh, bearing sort of intermediate characteristics between two different species, and you know straight away that's a hybrid. Interesting. Okay. So, for example, ah, uh, uh, this is this is technical talk, but you know, when I was in Tokyo last year, sometime well, sometime in August, uh, June, no, June last year, and I was walking around the Imperial Palace moat where there's lots and lots and lots of ducks in the area, and uh, I was looking at a bunch of uh, gadwalls, which are pretty large type of duck, very drab looking duck, and one of them looked really, really weird because it had a slight glossy sheen on the back of the neck. And okay. that suggests that it hybridized with uh, probably a falcated duck, which lives in the same area and produces weird hybrid offspring. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, in some cases, hybridization can be very unusual. So uh, there is this very interesting group of, of birds in, uh, I believe, in Peru, which my, I think my boss worked on. So um, you have species A in the north and species B in the south, right? Okay. They look different and they sound different. Right. Okay. In the middle, exactly between the two species core ranges, you have the hybrid zone. And in that hybrid zone, sometimes you encounter individuals that look like species A, but sound like species B. (laughs) Okay, wow. So that is super cool. Okay, so going back to uh, where were we before we were talking about before? Well, we're talking about species. So basically, species is a complex phenomenon. And the fact that we do observe hybridization 
uh, and also you know uh, from a genetic perspective gene flow so the the, the movement of of you know uh, genetic variants from one species to another is evidence that our well okay i mean in order for me to 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 really sort of bring this comment home it's important to remember that one of the first definition one of the first definitions of a species uh the biological species concept proposed by Ernst Meyer great you know naturalist and great scientist and evolutionary okay. biologist um was that so the the biological species concept states that um a species is a group of individuals that can breed with each other, but oh. not with another species. Oh my god, okay. You can see how that's problematic these days when yes. you notice that, you know, hybridization is rampant, but also, right, the biological species concept suffers from a bunch of other limitations as well. Right. What if I'm studying fossils? Uh, <laughs> that's a, okay, yes. That's a problem, what because how would bacteria? you know... Right, that's a good point. So, yeah. so when I encounter asexual organisms, or when I encounter you know evidence of life, but you know life that's already dead and I cannot observe reproduction, how does that you know fit in with the biological species concept? So, because of these limitations, scientists have come up with a multitude of other ways of defining species. At least twenty-three other ways of defining species. Twin. Okay. <laughs> Um, and for me what's... to go into all that would require a university level, probably a fourth year co- uh, undergrad course. Is is there uh, like at least one, you know, big competing theory that we can <laughs> discuss briefly? Uh, uh, no. <laughs> okay. Well, the the, the okay. one the one that you know us geneticists really like is what we call the the, the lineage species concept. Okay. Right. So a species belongs to a particular lineage. Of yep. organisms, yeah. That, well, it's no. That's even not not very. It's not a very good definition. Uh, I I I don't know this definition very well. But basically, uh, yeah, defining a species is not. Easy. I think that 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 is the 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 core problem of this, right? What Do is a species is a hugely contentious topic in evolutionary biology, and uh-huh. you know, um, put it this way: you put two evolutionary biologists in the room at, with different ideas of what a species is. You lock them in the room. You come back twenty four hours later; they will still be arguing about it. Yeah. Okay. I mean, do you um, do geneticists run into this problem that um, historical linguists often do, which is people will ask if you kind of define a, a language or you define a species, right, based on its lineage, then don't we all go back to the same point? Well, yes, but you know the idea is that when we look at lineages, especially genetic lineages, we always look at bifurcating trees. Right. Okay. So at some point, you can draw a cutoff. Right. Okay. It's it's maybe arbitrary, but you can still at least draw a cutoff. That's assuming that you know your lineages don't cross. By drawing a cutoff, you mean like you you're saying like okay, beyond this point we don't know, but after this point, they are already existing different branches of the tree. Yeah, well... Or, or different trees. Again, it's, it's complicated. It's complicated. Okay, yeah. put it this way. It's complicated for, for various reasons. Number one, because um, uh, the tree of life isn't as much a tree as it is a bush <laughs> in some cases, <laughs> right? We, we, we assume that, say, for every particular unit of evolution, in this case, a gene, mm-hmm. okay, I can draw a perfect bifurcating tree. Right, okay. Right? At some point, so say if I have a gene sequence that is ATCG, okay. right? It continues on through time, and at some point, a mutation occurs. 
Right. So it becomes TTCG. That's okay. when it bifurcates into two. Right. And then right. you have the ATCG branch. Any... And then you have the yeah. TTCG branch. Okay. That's right. So now you have two branches that have independent histories of each other. And okay. these can continue to bifurcate and bifurcate and bifurcate when independent mutation events occur. Right. Right. Now, the problem is this. We're not all just c- composed of one gene. Yeah. And every single gene in our body has its own independent life history. Okay. Right. Or its own, its own independent uh, genealogy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Some very clever wordplay there. Um, so when we look at a species, at least, you know, in terms of, oh, this is getting to the to, to, to very technical ter- terrain that I'm not sure I'm capturing adequately. But when okay. we, when, when, well, one of the things we do these days when we run evolutionary analysis, there are two schools of thought. Uh, one is looking at uh, the species tree, which basically takes all your gene trees. So you can construct an independent tree for every gene. And then you overlay them over each other to see what the general trend Jesus. is. Okay. Right? So some genes evolve a lot more slowly than others. Uh-huh. Other genes evolve more rapidly. Right? For example, yep. uh, oh, this is complex. Yeah. Some genes may recapitulate the true evolutionary history of, an, of, of, of a group of organisms. Well, what do you mean some by recapitulate? Genes... So, Okay. Let's look at humans and our closest relatives, chimpanzees. Okay. We know that at some point in time, we had a common ancestor with gorillas. Right, okay. And this common ancestor branched off to gorillas first. Right, okay. Right? So gorillas are much older ancestor, uh, much yep. much more, well, they, 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 they have a much more distant common ancestor with us relative to chimpanzees. Yes, okay, yep. Right? So basically, if I were to draw a tree, and this, this is where having a visual... A visual would, would uh, help. Yeah, uh, 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 aid would be very useful. I would have a tree where the closest node from us would be. Well, uh, if I draw the a closest common tree, ancestor, right? We would, would share a most recent common yeah. ancestor with chimpanzees, yeah. and a more distant common ancestor with gorillas. Right. Okay. This is what we would expect most of our genes to show genealogically. Right. Okay. That's not always the case. All right. So there are some genes, genes that look that, closer to gorillas. Know, that show humans having a much closer relationship with gorillas than we do with chimpanzees. All right? Right. And that's purely because of mutation being an independent process. And ah, a stochastic process. Right. So, it's so if not, I were to only base right. my evolutionary phylogeny off of one gene, and this gene shows the wrong topology of the tree... Okay. I would infer the wrong phylogenetic topology. Right. And it's not because it's not because the common ancestor, the most recent common ancestor has changed. It's just it's a mutation and it causes yep. the it it causes two more distant parts of the tree to look more similar than they actually are That's based right. on genealogy. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So so one school of thought is okay, we'll have to take every single tree, every single gene as independent and then construct one tree for every single gene locus, and then, you know, basically find a consensus. Right. The other way is to just combine all the genes into one super gene, and then construct a tree from that. Okay. Both of, both of these methods have their limitations, which I shall not go into because it's complicated as hell. Yeah. But basically, this is how we try to use genetic information to reconstruct 
complex evolutionary histories. Right, right. And we haven't even gotten into, you know, inferring hybridization, which is a different story altogether. <laughs> right. I mean, from everything that you described, there is a lot of overlap with uh, historical linguistics, yeah. which is not an area that I'm expert in. Uh, it's like literally took one class in college kind of expert. <laughs> yeah, but it is a problem that, as you can imagine, like with linguistics, there is also the same problem of like, classifying languages. At what point does a does language become different from a different from another language? Like, what's the difference between like um, a dialect and a language? That that's a whole big thing. Um, right. There's a saying, right? Like a language is a dialect with an army. <laughs> um, it's it's the same and, thing with 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 taxonomy as well, right? The yeah. question is, you know, okay, put it this way. Um, if you think a species is bad, what about higher taxonomy? So things like genus, order, family, species, <laughs> right? Okay. Uh, are, are these real or are these essentially human constructs? Did we just group them together because we see similarities, but they are not actual? They are well, not actual evolutionary similarities. That, okay. If I were to define family as a as a biological reality, right? okay. So, KPC, kingdom, phylum, class, order, genus, uh, order, family, genus, species, right? Okay. If I were to say that, okay, family or say genus All right. is a biological reality, this, this, this presumes that, this implies that if I compare a, gen- a genus level across all organisms, I would be looking at the same level of biological classification. Right. But you would not that's, be. That's not true. <laughs> yeah. Right. A a, a genus level at, within birds would differ significantly from a genus level within insects. Right. Okay. So there are some people that go, okay, fine. Anything higher than species is a human construct, but species <laughs> are real. You have some people who say that no, every single one of these you know constructs is real, and there are people who go that everything is fake. Everything is a human construct. Okay. Fun, isn't it? Okay, I mean right because we get into yeah. the idea of what is a subspecies. Oh How my are god! How subspecies okay. different from populations? Right. Okay. Which goes into this the, the whole problem of linguistics as well. Right. What is a, what what is a a creole? What is a dialect? Mm-hmm. How do you know uh, French Canadian from uh, yeah well, Canadian French from French French? Yeah. Are they the same? So I mean, are they two different languages? Here's here's the interesting thing. Like um. I think there is a saying, although I cannot remember who said it or where, or maybe I just read it on Wikipedia. Who knows, right? Um, a comment about... So there's there's this concept of a Sprachbund, which is slightly different from, from what I'm about to talk about. But a Sprachbund is basically like a, col- a, a collection of um, geographically related languages. Mm-hmm. Um, or I shouldn't say geographically related. They are just... They are languages that are close enough to one another to have had influence one another and right. so they have commonalities but they're not necessarily genetically uh, genetically right genetically related <laughs> right they don't necessarily descend from the same um, top level language or, or you know proto language um, right. which is not the same as proto is a, is a, is a specific term but proto in, oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, proto actually means that um, we we infer that the language existed based on existing evidence, but or based on like what evidence we have, but we have no evidence that the language existed. 
different. Right. Okay. Yeah. So if you think about like, for example, Proto-Germanic. Yeah. Right. We infer the existence of Proto-Germanic based on like English, German, Dutch, Icelandic, Danish, Norse, uh, no, well, no, Norwegian, um, mm-hmm. which may or may not also be Swedish. That, that whole thing, <laughs> Frisian, you know, and so on and so forth. Um, but if you think about the parent language of the Romance languages, right? Like, um, you know, French, Italian, Spanish, and so on. The parent language is Latin. And we don't yes. say proto-Romance because we know we have evidence of the Latin language. We do not have evidence oh, this of, is Germ- of this, proto-Germanic. I, this brings me into a different uh, tangent altogether, which is ancestral state reconstruction. Okay, in, in, bef- you know. before you go there. So here's yes. something that might interest you. We actually, like, historical, historical linguists actually... Um, I I'm okay. I am really. This is like one college class level, okay. But um, proto language, as it currently is, right? We we have kind of inferred what proto Germanic must have looked like, but in all likelihood, what we have documented as proto Germanic is probably not the language at a snapshot in time. We probably right. have a uh, uh, you know what we've kind of recreated of Proto-Germanic probably represents a, a, a time span and we've recreated different points in time. Mm-hmm. Of, so of there this... are confidence intervals about your estimate. <laughs> in a way, yes. <laughs> yeah, so we know from what we have done of Proto-Germanic, right, um, we know that at some point the language must have looked like this. But right. we don't know that at one point the language met all of these criteria that we have laid out. We just know that okay. within this time span, the language yeah. passed through this point at some at some time. Yeah. yeah. And before you go back to to your point, um, I I brought this up because like in, I think somewhere I read, um, this comment about Russian and the entire Russian like linguistic domain which is that if you go from, say, um, Moscow or St. Petersburg down to, um, down to uh, Kiev, right? Mm-hmm. From one village to the next, people can understand one another. Yes. But by the time, right, you go from Moscow to Kiev, you have two people mm-hmm. now who have trouble understanding one another is not that the language is so drastically different. They can still kind of, you know, there is some mutual intelligibility, but it's definitely at that point sufficiently distant that Mm -hmm. you might be prepared to call it a different language. And of course, the Russians and Ukrainians will, will, well, the Ukrainians will tell you it's a different language. Mm -hmm. But we don't have to go Fair enough, without going to politics. But no, I mean, this is interesting. Bring, bring it back to the, 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 the crow point, right? Yeah. So, you know, if, say, on opposite ends of the decline, you had really different looking species or different looking right. morphotypes, shall we say, right? So say, for example, there are noticeable size differences, there are noticeable vocal differences, there are noticeable behavioral differences. Maybe we would have some evidence to say, okay, there's two species there. Right. But, you know... At the genetic level, at the behavioral level, at the morphological level, uh, 
they're effectively the same, which is why there is now a proposal at the American Ornithological Society to remerge the Pacific, about well, the Northwestern crow and the American crow back into one species. And okay. to downgrade the Northwestern crow, I think, to a subspecies level <laughs> rather than okay. species level. Okay. Right. So, so this, I mean, this, this brings, you know, the, the very, uh, I, I guess it, there are analogs with this, but I'm going to go on, a, on an odd tangent. There are two tangents I want to, work, to, to go on, but one tangent is this, right? Have you heard of this thing called a ring species concept? Nope. Okay. So now imagine a landscape where you have this huge mountain range. Okay. Okay. Now let's start at 12 o'clock on this mountain range. At 12 o'clock, I have species A. Okay. Right. And as I go clockwise around uh, this mountain just, range... Let's just establish the mountain range runs from which o'clock to what o'clock? Sorry, north to south. North to south, okay. Right, so at 12 o'clock, I am on the top end of the mountain range. All right. So on the northern northern edge of the mountain range. Okay. Right? And then I work my way around the base of the mountain. Not 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 through the mountain, but around the base of the mountain. Right, Where okay. the habitat is the same. Right, same altitude. Okay. okay. At 12 o'clock, I have species A. And as I go around this mountain range... I start to accumulate differentiation because of subpopulation differentiation. Right. Okay. Such that by the time I reach back 12 o'clock, I have species B. Right. They are on opposite right. sides of the mountain. No, I'm at the exact same point on the mountain at 12 o'clock on the mountain, but right. I have two different species that are actually part of a client. Ah, okay. This is a very fascinating thing that uh, some groups have been working on, but it's a controversial topic. Um because okay. I, I think some of the controversies associated with this idea is that um, as you go around the mountain, you don't often see sort of clear clines. You see, you actually see disjunctions and breaks. So cline is C L I N E. Yes, C L I N E. Okay. So like a, like a, like a uh, you see you see a continuous variation. Right. Okay. Rather than discrete blocks. Yep. Right. Right. So. This has, this has been a very exciting idea that's been proposed uh, multiple times in literature, and there are several groups working on this. Um, one group working in China, looking at the greenish warbler. Okay. There's a group uh, that published recently on lizards in California, I believe, showing okay. that, you know, yeah, as you go around, you see this continuous uh, series of variants that don't really look as different from it, you know, from the adjacent uh, populations. Right. But once right. you make a full circle around, they look completely different and they don't recognize each other at all. Interesting. Okay. So is this one species or two species and where do I draw my species boundary in that case? Interesting. I mean, I would kind of... My, my question, right, as a layman, would be um, why would the... Why would the client, in a sense, go in one direction, which is clockwise, and not also in the other direction, and then you end up good having question. a? I don't know. Okay, that's a good question. No, but but it's 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 well. I mean, technically, you you do get bidirectional gene flow, right? But it's just that right. because gene flow is restricted in how spatially, uh, how how wide spatially it can move. Right. Purely because of how you know animals can't cross a, a million miles in a single day. Right. 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 Yeah. In, so gene flow is necessarily spatially restricted. Because of movement constraints, right? Okay. So your your genes will diffuse only a certain distance away from you, right? Right. Right. And because of that, you will see a cline that is not directional. It's directional from whichever starting point you adopt. Right. Okay. Yep. Yeah. All right. So that's one. What's the other thing that? 
<laughs> oh, the other thing, well, so, so yeah, so, so basically that, that, that's one conundrum that, you know, uh, is still controversial, but people are, dis- you know, discussing this and, and how, 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 how this might affect how we look at species. But the other thing that you brought up was how we can reconstruct ancestral languages. And mm-hmm. we also do quite similar things in, uh, in evolutionary biology as well, trying to reconstruct ancestral states or ancestral traits. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, this is something that's extremely technical. Um, mm-hmm. And also, uh, not without its con- uh, controversies. Right, okay. Right, so if I have a ph- phylogenetic tree, and I'm fairly confident this phylogenetic tree is accurate, okay, can I reconstruct, uh, say, a particular trait using this phylogenetic tree and its branch lengths as a guide? Right, okay. We can. Technically, right? So, for example, I'm interested in looking at wing length. Uh, my, my research is looking at, you know, migration in birds, right? Right. And so there are these birds that migrate long distances, but they have relatives that live in Southeast Asia that don't migrate at all. Okay. And these relatives have much shorter wings. Right, okay. So what I'm trying sense. to do with my yeah. research is to try to use this phylogenetic tree to reconstruct where this reduction in wing length occurred, whether it occurred mm-hmm. once or multiple times. Oh, okay, I see. Right. Yeah. By and, once... and doing so is, it uses a fair, fairly complex suite of uh, statistical techniques okay, uh, that I shall not go into at this point in time having because trouble... I don't know them as well as I should. I'm having trouble visualizing what the once or multiple times actually looks like. Are we talking about... Um, is, is this like... Uh, because, okay, in my mind, um, at least what I understand, right, of, of you know, evolution and genetics and so on, is that uh, in a situation where, you know, a species say... So you're describing two species. One has... One migrates, one doesn't. But they're related. No, no. I'm describing multiple species. Multiple so species, five okay. different species. Okay. Right? And okay. so we have, say, three that migrate and three, two that don't migrate. Okay. Right? Now, one thing I can look at is I can reconstruct migration behavior. Right, so okay. If, you know... Looking at the relative positions of the migrants and non-migrants on the tree, I can uh-huh. then you know use this to infer right. when migration was lost, right. and I can do this with continuous traits as well, like wing length. Right. Okay. That makes okay. That makes migration. more sense. That makes more sense. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So out of out of curiosity, so it would be something like you know did the did the original bird TM, right? Did the original <laughs> bird like my, was it a migratory bird or was it not? Did exactly. Was, so we can right, okay, we can I use. See. Yeah, ancestral state construction techniques to right. try and infer this. Uh, there's a whole bunch of methods. There are likelihood-based methods. There are parsimony-based methods, etc., etc. So it's it's that's where we get into complex uh, statistical terrain that I'm not going to go into. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, as you can imagine, there are there are analogs for this in uh, linguistics as well. But oh, yeah. uh, I don't know. We have been running for nearly one and a half hours, so it oh, might be a good time to yeah, yeah. <laughs> might be a good time this to wrap two up episodes. Yeah. Uh, no, we'll we'll keep it as one, but then we'll um, we'll we'll see where we pick up the next time. Yeah. Right. So. Oh, oh that yeah. Was interesting. Yeah. So I've actually I actually went ahead and I set up a domain for Monkey Mind. Okay. So it's monkeymind.xyz, and nice. uh, we will we will have show notes. It will be at monkeymind.xyz slash zero zero two. Okay. And uh, yeah, I it will probably take like a week to turn this around. So. By the time you see this, it will be like nineteenth April or something. I d- I don't know which date we're hmm. publishing. Like it'll it'll be published when it's ready, basically. <laughs> okay. All right. That's all, and uh, we'll see you next week, I guess.
I'll see you, next see you. Week. talk right. to you next week. We're still yes. on circuit breaker. Right. Yes. All right. All right, ciao. Okay, bye-bye. Till next time, bye.